This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Before they were engineers, many of the creative minds at Lego were kids who received a special gift, leading them down a path to build worlds at Lego. This year, spark curiosity and start your holiday traditions at the Lego store. With millions of unique sets available for the special person on your list, there's something for everyone. Every gift has a story. Start building your story today. Learn more at lego.build slash vox. That's lego.build slash vox. Hello, and welcome to I Think You're Interesting. I'm Todd Vanderwerf, the I, and I Think You're Interesting. And this is the end of the road, folks. This is the the last episode of I Think You're Interesting as you know it. We're going to be back next year in a different form, which I'm going to talk about a little bit later. But we wanted to get an amazing guest to see this version of the show off, to, to wave goodbye to it as it sails away. And like, who better than Mahershala Ali? He's an actor whose career I've been following for a surprisingly long time. I watched this show on USA called The 4400 with my wife. I think we might have been the only people watching it. It was about people who mysteriously started appearing on Earth and you wondered if they were aliens or superheroes or something. They had weird powers. I won't spoil the twist. I don't know like why I'm not spoiling the twist. It aired 10 years ago and I don't know how you're going to see it today, but Herschel Ali was on that show. He was just like enormously compelling. He was kind of like a romantic hero of the show. And like, it's this huge ensemble cast, clearly inspired by Lost. And yet here he is. He's just like standing out above the rest on this show that like people weren't really watching. I noticed him here and there after that, you know, he kept popping up in, in various things. But what really took him to the next level, what really brought him into like the huge mainstream conversation is he won an Oscar for his work in Moonlight as this incredibly sensitive drug dealer who still like notices that the main character as a young boy is is probably gay and like sort of carves out a space for him to be okay with himself. And like it was such a beautiful, sensitive portrayal of a character that doesn't always get beautiful, sensitive portrayals on screen. And when Mahershala Ali won an Oscar for that. I was so happy for him as a fan from the 4400, but also because he's tremendous in that movie. 
And now his career is everywhere. He's in Green Book, a movie that's getting some Oscar buzz this year. And he's about to be on the new season of True Detective, which we talked a little bit about. So one thing to note, it wouldn't be, I think you're interesting, if we hadn't recorded this in a hotel, which we did. We recorded this at the Four Seasons in Beverly Hills. So if there's a little chatter, a little noise, that's what that was. But we've done our best to get it out. It should be. It should be fine. So without further ado, let's talk to Mahershala Ali. My guest today, uh, as I said in the intro, I've been watching you since the 4,400 days. Oh, wow. Uh, I've loved your work. Um, Herschel Ali, it's good to have you here. Thanks for having me. So I was watching True Detective. I'm not going to spoil anything. There are scenes set in cars. I think that's not a spoiler (laughs) to say that in this show. Um, In in Green Book, your recent movie, a lot of scenes Mm. set in cars. When you are confined to, I have to sit in the car, Mm. you know, I only have my upper body to work with, really. How does that affect your performance? Wow, that's a good question. Um, Sometimes having limitations as an actor really works for you Mm -hmm. because you immediately have to process a space and go, okay, what do I have available to me? Mm -hmm. Like, how much space do I have? What can I... What can I touch, feel, grab? What do I need to avoid? Mm. So you you get to know your environment like really quickly. And as you rehearse a scene, meaning like, I don't know, you get, if you're lucky, you get get to do it maybe three times before sure. you start shooting tops, like most often maybe about twice. So you just start quickly locking in to what is necessary, like is in terms of like movement, mm-hmm. um, Props, things of that nature. What is going to help tell the story in that three, four, five minute scene, or what have you, in that confined, tight space? But I actually really quite. Now that you mention it, I found like some of my favorite between Green Book and then I, I started uh, True Detective about a week later or whatever. But between those two projects and spending a f- decent amount in, in the car, I found that I really liked working in that in that kind of space. Yeah, yeah. Is there a way as an actor you can kind of set those limitations for yourself? Is there like uh-huh. a way to say, okay, well, this, I'm sure you say like this character yeah. wouldn't do this, this character would do this, you know? Yeah. Um, I think there's ways to, to try to get really clear and quickly because mm-hmm. in, especially in television, everything is really quick. You got a lot of work to do in a short amount of time. So I think it gets into, with TV, my approach is, what do I need? Mm-hmm. Like, that's it. Like, I, I really approach every scene, every moment with, like, what is purely necessary to tell the story? And if I find that there's more space for a little more nuance or a little bit more space to do a little something else, I sort of investigate the value of more movement or mm. how does that affect the blocking but it always goes back to you you're in a good space with 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 scene work when you really lean on the necessary elements to tell the story and i think if you do anything extra it's about really trying to sprinkle in behavior mm-hmm. just things that you normally just see people do and like little if you watch steven i noticed and we never talked about this but he has a little character tick mm-hmm. and he does this thing with his hand and he, he'll go to it from time to time when he's processing a thought or he, he bridges things with it and he's a really good actor so i imagine he's he's really conscious of it but mm-hmm. it's something that i clocked and you start adding in these little things that just sort of enhance the experience for the audience and watching a character or a person that's right in front of you. Mm-hmm. We're talking about Stephen Dorff, your, yeah, your yes. scene partner for a lot of True Detective. I, it's not 
really spoiling anything to say this takes place across different time periods because yeah. that's a true detective thing, yeah. including one where you have to play a fairly significant age yeah. difference. How did you approach that challenge? I know every actor sort of has a different way to look at doing that. Yeah. Um, you know, I didn't have a lot of time to prepare coming into this job, and which made me really nervous. But there was something, I think, in the back of my mind that gave me a lot of peace about that element of the story. So I was really fortunate to go to a really good conservatory program. I went to, to Tisch mm-hmm. in New York. And so you got these kids who are between 22 and maybe like 28 years old, mm-hmm. usually like wherever they are in their graduate, you know, some people take off two years or whatever mm-hmm. out of undergrad or what have you. But when you look at Shakespeare and, and, and Chekhov and Ibsen and, you know, even August Wilson or so many of these characters have, you look at Death of a Salesman, or they're all, so many of them are older and really mature, but that's the work that you're doing in school. Like mm-hmm. you're doing, you're, you're doing the greats plays mm-hmm. and they're usually for people who are in their 40s, 50s, 60s, even 70s. So I, because of like my size or whatever presence in comparison to other people in, in, in my class, I found that I, I never really got to play like the, you know, the young up, <laughs> up and coming, like handsome dude. I was always playing the older guys. Mm-hmm. I was always playing the, the elder statesmen, and which was really frustrating to me at the time because I wanted to, you know, do something else. But I found that it worked for me in that I had, I had a lot of stabs at playing older people, like people who were 40, 50 years older than me and having to on stage embody that in some way, shape or form. And so I had a, I had enough experience and time doing things that were so far outside of me that in the back of my mind coming into this, I felt like there were some principles that I could draw from to at least get me in, in the correct space to to tell that that aspect of the story truthfully. What drew you to acting in the first place? Because Tush is like a serious program, yeah. so you were into it. I was really fortunate. I think um, my father was in the arts. He was in musical theater. So that's what was my first exposure to it. But because he did musical theater, I looked at acting as a different... I didn't think of them as the same thing per se. You know, I thought I felt like musical theater was more entertainment in a certain way, at least at that time. But I think later on, I just found that as you're a kid growing up and you're looking for all your signs of positive feedback, which you sort of like clock and you begin to go in a certain direction because people have said like, hey, you're pretty good at that, whatever that may be, you know? And I think you do that with sports, you do it with the arts, you do it academically. And I think for me, when I was mature enough, when I really, first time I acted, I was I think 19. But the when I really got into it was like really a couple of years later, more so in my like senior year. And I think I was mature enough knowing that I was about to finish college that I really needed to hone in and hone in quickly on where I wanted to put my energies. And so I had enough positive feedback from having done a play or two and kind of lucked up and just got a great spot in the California Shakespeare Festival as an apprentice. So I was just getting my life signs, mm-hmm. so to speak. And the more I worked at it, I felt like the 
the more I invested in it, I kind of found that I was getting a return on my investment, just holistically, creatively. It was great for my confidence. It felt like it was acting. It was really subtly therapeutic in a certain way, you know, um, and just really fulfilling, just in telling these stories, connecting with people and, and moving folks and just the challenges involved in the work always were really exciting to me. And that's and I've always felt that way about it. And it makes me excited to like find the next project. Like what's the next challenge going to be, you know? Um, so I'm really grateful for the career having found me, you know? Yeah. Yeah. You mentioned yeah. your, your father was, was in musical theater and you at the time sort of weren't sure what to make of that. Let's mm. say what's, what's something you ended up taking from him anyway that mm. like you notice in your work now, you know? It is ambition. Mm-hmm. And I don't say that with any, arrogance. I think that anybody who is a degree of separation from an actor or is an actor, I think you inherently understand how much of a hustle it is. Mm -hmm. And when I say hustle, I just mean it's, it's real, like it's blue collar work from the standpoint. I was speaking with Chadwick one time in a round table and he, and he really brought that up, Chadwick Boseman, about how, how it's really like a, a working class Thing. Like mm. you got to really, I saw my dad was in the ensemble and in, and in the courses and the understudy and doing extra work. And so there's that real quality to the work where you got to really hustle and scrap and have a vision for yourself and keep going for it. You can't be shy. I'm naturally a little, a little introverted and that part of me doesn't always serve me. So you got to like kind of fight against that and and ask for your opportunities sometimes and do your best work to be undeniable. And that's just a quality that every actor has to at some point sort of embrace mm-hmm. um, to sort of keep moving forward because you there, I'm sure there's a few examples, but you'll be hard pressed to find an actor who says, yeah, I just, I booked my first audition and my second one and I got this opportunity. Like it doesn't, you got to fight for it. I don't care who it is, you know, mm-hmm. cross color and gender and whatnot. Like it's a real fight to get to keep doing this work. And at some point you could be fortunate enough for it to get a lot easier. And that's such a small percentage of actors who who have gotten to a place where they just have opportunities like coming at them all the time. That's where we all want to be and all want to stay. Mm. But it's it's very difficult. You have to be very fortunate to get to that place. And, and you know, so I'm, I'm grateful this has worked out for me. I've read some other interviews with you where you talk about how you fought to get this part yeah. in, in True Detective. What was it that drew you to it? And when you were like, I really want to play this part, what's yeah. your what's your strategy for that, yeah. you know? Well, I, was, I just want to say one thing. Like, I, w- I wouldn't say I fought to play the part. I, I would say that I was very clear on wanting to play this part. And uh, I asked and I, and, um, and I sent along some supporting um, information <laughs> to, to, uh, to help encourage Nick to, to make that choice. But what was your question? Uh, just, you know, when you yeah. say, when you see something that you really want to do, how do you yeah. know that, okay, this is a part I really yeah. want to play, you know, because yeah. there are great parts that maybe just you don't want to play, you know? Right. I think when they speak to your spirit, man, when they speak mm-hmm. to your, your being, just like when you sit back and you, you go, you can go see a hundred movies, you know, maybe, maybe five of them are going to make you feel and 70 of them could be good, but mm-hmm. there's like probably three to five of them that that you wake up the next day and you're still thinking about or you or you really are encouraging somebody to go see it. You absolutely have to see it. Mm-hmm. And that's how it's the same way in reading a script. 
And when I read the four episodes that that uh, Nick and HBO shared with me, I just I felt like I had never seen anything as as I don't want to put too much on it, but you know I've done a lot of TV, I've auditioned for a lot of TV, I've read a lot of television scripts. I'd never seen anything that was this nuanced and well written, and all the characters were terrific. But for me. Wayne felt like the character that if there were any chance, I absolutely had to and wanted to to play that part. Um, it's not just the time element. I think I loved his reclusiveness. I loved how thoughtful he was, his attention to detail. I loved that he was flawed and imperfect and and sort of he has this He's got this, he's like kind of a, a, a grumpy younger guy, and then he's a grumpy older guy <laughs> later on. But for him, it all makes, the, the world makes sense to him. What the world should be, he has a clear vision of that in his head. And I think in his own way, he's going he's gonna to make an effort to, to correct the world, mm-hmm. you know? Even when he's wrong, he's, he's really trying to, to bring the world, bring, bring his world back into alignment, the, the little bit that he can control simply because it's the right thing to do. Mm. And um, just seeing something just laid out that well, like that's just like, that's a dream for an actor to to look at what's on that page and go, oh man, I can only imagine getting to wrestle with this challenge and trying to bring this scene to life. And so, um, so yeah, it was an easy one to fight for because my grandmother has told me my entire life, and I thought of her as soon as I read the first four episodes. I thought of my grandmother. She would always tell me, she would say, you know, Ali, all they could do is say no. And I thought of her, and I said, you know what, I'm going to ask. And I got some pictures of my grandfather, um, not her husband, but my, my mother's father, and I, who was a state police officer. And I sent him to Nick and uh, and said, you know, he obviously believed we existed in that space because it was it was written where the the supporting character, the supporting police officer was black. So it wasn't like he was didn't think that we could we had a place there at all. I just responded more to Wayne and uh, it felt like I hadn't had a chance to do anything close to that before and wanted to do it. So when you were cast in that part, which was not initially written as black, did you have conversations with Nick about like, okay, these are things that probably would come up? Yeah. Because um, race is not like the central issue of the at story, all. but it informs at all. Yeah. so much that happens, you know? Yeah, yeah which was the progression for where I feel film and television needs to go in a more consistent way, where racism is a part of it, where it informs the world, but it's not the world, you know, but you can't ignore it, you can't forget about it, but it's something that, you know, rears its head at times, or there's a real question as to if the experience you just had, if that moment you just had, was that, was that a a racist moment. And that happens really often just in life, you know? And so when Nick and I spoke and I pitched myself for the part, I was concerned that that he would suddenly feel like, oh man, I got to make this about being black. And I, I didn't want him to do that, but I didn't want him to ignore the fact that the character was black. Um, and so I was just encouraging him to to just think about it in a way where perhaps like you're interviewing a, a suspect or potential witness and the focus of 
that witness's attention is more on the white cop than it is on me. Mm -hmm. And I think when you build those things in and they sort of add up, I think cumulatively, you can feel an environment or witness an environment that will reflect more of what real life is. And when you think about race in some regard, it's not necessarily overt all the time. It's not like people are just hurling the N-word at you, you know, just it's in a handshake or a lack of effort in the handshake or the eyes not meeting or there it being an abrasive goodbye or an abrasive hello or there being an extra degree of resistance in communicating with you. That's beyond about being a police officer. It's just that I don't know if I trust you. You can So it has to be built in and in the fabric of the story. And I just made a little mention of it. And Nick, Nick did what Nick does and went back and turned in brilliant scripts. And I think, you know, we all had very, very few notes. <laughs> so. I was thinking about, as I was watching these, there's there's kind of a 10, one of the time jumps is 10 years. Yeah. And I was thinking about talking to you in 2018, if yeah. we had also talked in 2008, you're yeah. in very different places in your career at yeah. that point. You have, you know, you, you were working consistently in 2008, yeah. but now you're like, you have, you, you're, like a star, you know, (laughs) uh, did you expect that to happen? Like, can you prepare for this journey that you've been on in any way? Well, for me, there's a difference between star or celebrity and leading man. Mm -hmm. So I've been with my manager now for 12 years. And, um, I, I remember it was about 2009 and I said to her, and again, there's a difference in my mind between star and leading man. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm speaking about carrying story and having an opportunity to to bring characters to life and, and wanting a certain type of responsibility and to be stretched and like feeling like, oh, I feel like I have the qualities or the attributes to be able to, to do that and figure it out and hopefully at some point get really good at carrying stories and leading the way. But I said to my manager, Carolyn, in 2009, I remember I said, um, Carolyn, I really believe I'm a leading man. And forgive me if that sounds arrogant at all, and that's not my intention, but it's just where my my vision for my for my career and my experience was at. And she said, yo, you gotta believe it first, you know? And 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 I did. I just I just wanted the I wanted the opportunities to unfold in that way. And I never let go of that in my mind. But around moonlight is right when that and I'm talking around shooting it, is when it started to get I think really difficult because I started to feel the the pressure of time and I'm I'm a fairly goal oriented person mm-hmm. I think and I also look at setting a goal as a beginning so I don't like not finishing things so for me it felt like oh man I'm not gonna I'm worried about not getting to that place mm-hmm. where I get to have a more fulfilling experience. And and so for it to unfold the way that it has, like right at a breaking point for me, it just like sort of in my in my energy toward the work, mm-hmm. feeling like, man, I've reached this, like I got this, this glass ceiling and I just can't seem to, to go beyond it. And then just out of the blue, it it just opened up. 
And so, yeah, I, I did want this for myself. You know, mm-hmm. the the celebrity aspects of it and all that, that's a little bit beyond my understanding. Mm-hmm. Honestly, I just, if it means that you get good parts, then I'll take it. <laughs> <laughs> when you, Obviously, the script for Moonlight's brilliant. But yeah. like when you read that, were you like, did you think this is going to be the thing? Did you? I felt like that film was going to be really extraordinarily special. Mm-hmm. I really did. In terms of like awards and all that kind of stuff, I didn't. I wasn't doing film like that mm-hmm. up until that point. I'd done Benjamin Button and what, Predators or something. And I'd done a handful, like mm-hmm. a place beyond the pines. But a film that is basically immediately embraced by, mm-hmm. we started in Telluride. So, like, you know, you got a world of cinephiles there who are really speaking to how deep and rich that film was. And then we were in Toronto the week after that, and then it just sort of exploded. So to be on that ride and that trajectory with something, I didn't know how that could work. Mm-hmm. You know, that was all a mystery to me, how something became a piece that like the critics loved and appreciated. And eventually that made its way into the lay audience, you know? Um, but I definitely felt, and especially from when I read it, mm-hmm. from before I read it, there were agents and everybody like that script was like it was there was a buzz. And then and I booked it. We were shooting it. I was like, this is special. Saw the first screening of it, blown away by that. And then once it was released, all you know, we know all what all unfolded. So. Um, yeah. So long story, short story long. Yes, I did. <laughs> I did feel like it was going to do something special. Well, we're kind of coming into the end, and I like to ask yeah. uh, people who are thoughtful about yeah. the arts this sort of question, which is, we're in a really fraught time, mm. a time when it feels like we shout past each other a lot. Yeah. What do you see as the role of storytelling, of art, in sort of facilitating uh, whatever it is we're going through right mm. now, you know, helping us figure out, you mm. know, the future, I guess? Well, um, I feel like filmmaking, um, creating content is really a an opportunity to listen, like even Mm -hmm. from the creative standpoint, like you have to listen to these characters. You have to have empathy and listen to, listen to somebody's story. Someone's story or experience has to resonate with you, whether that be fiction or nonfiction, that there's something about it where you feel like this needs to exist. So you, you had to have responded and heard something in the culture to create it. Mm -hmm. And then the audience has to listen as well. Or they don't have to, but if they if it's marketed right or whatever, it hit taps into that right vein, they have an opportunity to listen and to be moved, to be affected, to grow, to be improved by that, for that to be a point of conversation. And that's not in all cases because some things are just really purely entertaining and mm-hmm. that has its place. You know, mm-hmm. people people need and appreciate an opportunity to escape but there's also especially in this time a real opportunity to to carve out space to encourage the process of evolution mm-hmm. to to encourage the process of us maturing and growing up as as a culture mm-hmm. you know and and i think that at this point i think if you could recognize that then there becomes this responsibility to always keep that in mind Mm. Um, as you create content for people who are, whether they realize it or not, are really looking to continue to grow and, yeah. and improve. And that that is such an important thing for our culture. That's the that's the responsibility of art. Yeah. And it has always been the responsibility of art. Yeah. 
Yeah. Well, we end every episode by asking our guests some of the same questions. Yeah. So I'm going to ask you one of those, which is, who is the actor, living or dead, that you've learned the most from that you never met? Oh, that I've never met. Yeah. Uh, Sidney Portier, mm. I would say, mm. uh, or James Earl Jones. What is it about those two men? Um, specifically speaking about James Earl Jones, what I love about him is... And you got to consider the time in which he did most of his work to see a, a man of that stature, like really own his space mm-hmm. and own that voice, you know, and not he never apologized. And, and he did work. There's a depth and, and always a weight and darkness in his work mm-hmm. that always resonated with me. Like if you see him in like the great white hope mm-hmm. you know, yeah. with Jane Alexander, mm-hmm. he is like otherworldly in that. And I just think what Sidney Poitier did in his time and how he basically paved the way for so many of us to come behind him, men and women, Mm. um, and the way in which he carried himself, the dignity and respect, um, the love of the craft, always working to improve and improving and and what that did to leave an impression on how how press and America and the world thought of black people in that time mm-hmm. um, and even after uh, I think is is nothing that you could you can't take that for granted or, or overlook it so I, I'm really appreciative of of both of those gentlemen who have never had the honor of meeting. Well, uh, Green Book and Spider-Man, which you're also in, are in theaters right now, and True Detective starts in January. Mahershala Ali, thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me. Coming up next to help inspire your holiday gift giving, we have a very special advertiser message from the Lego store and shop.lego.com. Check it out. Jake Sadovich is serious about puzzles. For a living, I work at an escape room designing gameplay. And this love of puzzles all started with a Lego set he got as a gift. It was one of the Explorian sets. It was the big uh, space base where the front opened up and the truck came out. Jake loved the way the pieces interlocked, how you could move parts around infinitely. Years later, he found an old ship-in-a-bottle set at a thrift store. And it gave him a crazy idea. I decided I'd go ahead and build it, bottle and all, completely out of Lego. When he finished, he submitted it to Lego Ideas, a platform where fans can showcase builds and vote on ones they think Lego should manufacture. And it was a hit. It was really kind of surreal. It was amazing when it was getting votes very, very quickly. Weeks later, Jake finally heard back from Lego. They had chosen his design. He was just kind of blown away that Lego's now going to build a set based on your creation is really kind of overwhelming. But his favorite thing was how people took his puzzle and made it their own. So they build the ship in the bottle set, but they take the ship out and they'll put like a spaceship or flower garden. Because when you give someone a Lego set, you're not giving them a set of rules to follow. You're giving them the inspiration to create something totally unique. It's just a great feeling to know that that will help to inspire kind of the next generation of Lego builders to go out and create and do their thing. With Lego, every gift has a story. Start your story today at your local Lego store. 
Thanks for that message from our sponsor, The Lego Store. To learn more, go to lego.build slash vox. That's lego.build slash vox. L-E-G-O dot build slash V-O-X. Or simply tap the link in the show notes to get started. So for the second half of this episode, we thought, hey, let's do some of our favorite clips from the history of the show. So here are, here are five moments I really loved on this show. And uh, if you've been listening throughout, I hope you enjoy also hearing them. If you haven't listened to like the first year of shows, which a lot of you haven't, uh, go back and catch up on them. There's some good stuff in there. But we're going to start with, I, I think like the moment that was most unexpected for me in making this show, which was I had Kelly Martin on. She's an actress known for Life Goes On and ER, and she was in a TBS show called The Guest Book when we had her on. She's done a bunch of Hallmark movies. I don't know that I was expecting what happened, but she told a story about getting written out of ER, which I just was like, I thought that was going to be a cool story. And like, it turned into like this incredibly emotional voyage for her and for me. And let's, let's start there. Let's listen to that. Well, you brought up ER, so let's go there. Let's go there. Talk about it. Uh, You are part of, I think, at least for my generation, one of the the most famous TV moments uh, that the conclusion of that episode where uh, Carter is attacked and falls to the floor and there you are. Obviously, you must have read that and been like, wow, that's cool. But also you knew you were leaving the show. Uh, What was that emotional (laughs) ride like to get the show, be on the show and then be written out of the show? So a quick little backstory. Um, I my sister got lupus and passed away um like a week before I started working on oh, ER. Wow. So I started that show as an absolute wreck. I mean, mm. literally, they pushed for a week for me because mm. they wanted to give me a week. Mm. So I don't remember much about ER. Like mm. I really was on autopilot. And it, what's sad is it was such an great opportunity. And I wish I had, you know, whatever. I wish my life had been different then. Um, so that I could have kind of embraced it and really enjoyed it, but I wasn't able to at all. I just held it together and kind of got through the day. Um, so being in a hospital after having been in a hospital for months for real with my sister was super weird and felt really wrong. So, um, I never allowed myself to really enjoy it and go there. Um, so when they approached, when John Wells approached me to have, Lucy leave. Right. Um, I was I was a little relieved, um, just because I kind of just couldn't keep it up. Yeah. Um, and so it was a blessing in disguise. Even though I've never, I mean, I took it as I was being fired. Right. <laughs> and he said, well, "We're just doing something different with the story." And I'm like, "Yeah, you're killing me. <laughs> like that's totally like firing me." He said, "No, no, that's not exactly it." So, um, so that was hard. It yeah. was really all the way around, really hard. It was a relief, and then. Um, but to be killed and to like die over two episodes, which I'm so glad it was an awesome moment in television. It was really hard for me. Yeah. And it was really hard for the other actors because they did not know I was leaving until they read the script. Right. So it was really sad. I mean, Alex Kingston, in, there's this scene where I diagnose myself. I, I put my hand over my trach and I say, B-E, mm. like pulmonary embolism. Yeah. And she's in that scene with me. She couldn't get through the scene because she kept sobbing. She kept going, I just can't. I don't want her to leave. I don't (laughs) want her to leave. So it was hard. It was hard. And when, and my last scene that I ever shot on ER was when I was laying on the slab dead. Yeah. 
And the director, Jonathan Kaplan, came up and he whispered to me, when you're wrapped. And I just kind of grabbed my husband's hand and I left. I didn't even say goodbye to people. It was really hard for me. Yeah. So again, with my weird life, like truth is stranger than fiction, but still like it's weird. It's just, uh, it was a hard time for me. One of the things that I really loved about the show was that we could have people on who were not perhaps in the mainstream like conversation around these things. And one of the people I loved having on was the costume designer for The Handmaid's Tale and a bunch of other shows that you've loved and Crabtree. And we just kind of talked about like what it means to design costumes, what it means to like have a dream to do that when you maybe don't grow up in the sorts of places that are really Hollywood adjacent. So here's a quick uh, clip from that discussion. But you were on Rectify for a little bit, right? I was. I'm so glad you said that. And I love that show. And it's one of the few shows to me that captured, we were connecting before recording about how I'm from South Dakota and you were born there, but then grew up in Kentucky. It's one of the few shows that I think captures rural America, not as like a place to escape. Because most of the people who wind up in Hollywood or New York from rural America desperately wanted to get out of there. Oh, heck yeah. As I did. Yeah, all of us. But- Like there are things, there are good things about those places that keep people there, that keep people living there and having families there and things like that. I'm wondering like what sticks with you about your rural upbringing, maybe what you brought to Rectify, maybe not, but just like about that world that still informs how you work today. Wow. That is A, a brilliant question, and B, I'm so quietly screaming for joy inside that you mentioned Rectify because there's two seminal moments in my career. I I was that kid that ran away from Mm. Kentucky. I don't even think I even told anybody in New York the first year that Mm. I was from Kentucky because I was so worried about being judged for that. Later on, it became cool. But uh, Justified was a show set in Appalachia. Mm -hmm. It was the first time that I researched I was, I'm not going to say I'm from there because I didn't grow up in Appalachia, but I certainly have Appalachian uh, family members Mm -hmm. who may or may not want to accept that I'm related to them. That's okay. But I fell in love with Appalachia. Mm -hmm. And um, so Justified was awesome for that for me. And I fucking went there to look at it again. There was such a responsibility to get it right Mm -hmm. and not have the typical cliche versions of Kentucky. Yeah. And then when I got to Georgia, I always talk about Rectify because it it's one of those shows that stays with you. The writing is beautiful. Yeah. Um, Ray McKinnon is from Georgia. Mm-hmm. Um, he's from the place where the sweet onions are from. Valdosta, maybe? Vidalia? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. Valdosta is the university. Yes. Vidalia like that. onions. <laughs> That's it. Um, and I feel like in my interview with him, I knew he was from Georgia, but I was I had a kind of shadowy veil over mm-hmm. my face because I I was kind of a not southern hater, but a kind of I felt like a fraud when right. I met Ray. And I knew that he wanted to tell these southern gothic beautiful stories of Americana. And, you know, for the first episode, I was like, oh no, he's gonna find out. He's mm-hmm. gonna find out that I fucking had a bad childhood in the South mm. and that I ran and I'm a fraud. And I had to keep promising him that I would tell the truth in the clothing. Yeah. And that, and I didn't promise him that I would celebrate it because uh, I didn't want to be a liar. But I knew that I was going to fall in love with the South all over again. 
which I did. And it was so cool because we shot in these tiny, beautiful towns in Georgia um, that you've seen throughout Rectify. I even went early. I, I, I looked on a map and I saw the name Zebulon, mm. which is an amazing name. And it's from Zebulon Pike. Yeah. Okay, from Pike's Peak. And I said, I want to live there because it's fucking awesome. And it's an old biblical name. I don't want to live in the same town with everybody else because it'll mm. be modern. And I fucking moved to Zebulon, a town of less than a thousand, mm. maybe even less than a hundred. I don't want to get it wrong. But uh, I found an old house. We had our costume shop there. Mm. And I lived upstairs and I was never happier. Mm. I adopted a dog from Georgia named Georgia. And I'm driving to Georgia on Friday for another job. Yeah. And it, it just does something. It, uh, it's like taking this elixir that you don't remember that you love mm. from your childhood. It's like, it's like, I don't know, your first banana split or like your first cherry pie. And like how you remember everything. Yeah. The heat of the cherry pie, the aroma, the smell, the bees buzzing because you're eating outside. That's rectified for me. It's insane yeah. how it gets in your veins. And that can't help but translate into the clothing. Mm. It's not, I didn't want to tell any lies. I didn't want to act like it was more idyllic right. than it was. But I also didn't want to have like country bumpkins sitting in overalls, even though they are real, uh, on a porch, yeah. you know? And um, I love Ray and I love everybody in that show. I still talk to some of the actors, Abigail yeah. and Aiden and, um, and Jay. And I, you know, you just have a sense of responsibility. And what's beautiful is... For the most part, when a script is so intellectually right on and touches a nerve, a poignant heart nerve, you find a collective consciousness in mm. the crew and the cast. It's it's really, you can feel it as soon as it starts. Rectify was that. Westworld was that. Handmaid's Tale was that. It, I've been, Luck, the HBO amazing show I did with Milch and Man. Yeah beautiful right mm -hmm. and their lasting images and their lasting emotions and i'm i'm lucky mm. you know mm. like how did i get here i'm really serious <laughs> <laughs> talking to you todd so one of the household names we had on the show was comedian and actor russell brand he wanted to talk about sort of rehabilitation, about 12-step programs, about stuff like that. And and really, it was like a fascinating discussion because he kept going down tangents and I kept feeling like, yeah, let's just go there and see what happens. And I feel like I learned a lot about interviewing from talking to him, which I probably shouldn't admit, but the show's over. So anyway, here's a quick discussion with Russell Brand. You mentioned uh, in the book that the first three steps, people get hung up on different ones. But it seems like a lot of people get hum hung up on number three, which which mentions God in mm. the classical language. And you talk about ways to think about the idea of God, even if you're an atheist, even you're th if you're agnostic. And I'm wondering, as someone who often struggles with the idea of God mm. uh, myself, how did you find your way through to a place where you have what sounds like sort of a freewheeling spirituality, but it's there? The way I experienced it was I'm cynical about forms of power and, mm. and institutionalized forms of power. So if someone tells me, oh, there's this thing that's better than you, I don't like that way of seeing things. The brilliant thing that 12-step organizations do 
is tell you, choose your own conception of a higher power, that like, which in a way is a bloody obvious thing to do because even if we all grew up in the same Mormon village, we would have different imaginary concepts of what God might be mm-hmm. in our own heads because that's just the way that imagination and individual consciousness works. Yeah. So like, to say to someone, well, what do you think God is? Right, that's a that's an interesting thing. Like, because in a way, all you're asking someone to do is say, "Do you think there's something more powerful than you in the world, or is you and your decisions and your way of life the mm. most important thing in the world?" Same. So, to take it like from an atheistic perspective, if you say no, this is just a physical phenomena, a material phenomena, an explosion, expanding, rushing towards nothing, with no conscious component, and recent discoveries in discoveries in quantum physics that deny previous understanding of physical law will, in time, be understood. And I would sort of agree with that actually, because I think everything could be understood on a material mechanical level. But <laughs> ultimately, I believe we'll reach a point where human intelligence will be insufficient to understand the phenomena that we're confronted with it will be in defiance of our sensory instruments and our ability to cognizize so at that point we're dealing with a a knowledge base an information base that supersedes our ability to understand it now in a way that could be understood as god indeed einstein said uh there are forces in this universe that are more powerful than i can ever begin to understand and i have great reverence for these forces and to that degree I'm religious so he was sort of saying you know I'm not down with the gospels but some shit's going on mm-hmm. yeah but so for me it, it, whichever way you pursue it you end up at a point dealing with this idea of there being something bigger than us in a simplistic and pantheonistic term you can say the routines and functions of nature the process of the sunrise and photosynthesis these are all beautiful forces and your own personal anatomy that keeps you alive unbidden your respiration and digestion and palpitating heart Mm. all forces that we are not in control of and while you can mechanically explain oh no the heart does this and the lungs do that no one really knows why and how this singular single cellular force was propelled to these great great complexities so for me it became about recognizing that that there were forces that there were powers and then seeing that in sort of religious in inverted commas ideologies there were certain repeated patterns and themes that were beyond cultural inflection like when I th- when we talk about the great monotheistic ideologies there are sort of they all bear kind of uh, uh, the prejudices of their culture and their time mm-hmm. in like and the, the stuff that leads to bigotry and conflict these days but in them too there's so much about unity and love and oneness and potential and glory yeah. and that stuff I find very very appealing and so if I like whilst I wouldn't myself subscribe to any particular religion if so, I meet someone that's a Hindu I really go oh tell me about your Hindu stuff and mm. if I meet someone that's uh, Muslim I'm like tell me about the, the Sufism I want to know you know so it's I think there's something in it that you can't get from rationalism that you mm-hmm. can't get from people talking about you know this sort of biochemical analysis of anatomy or neurology there's something going on and also, there's a bloody great big crossover. When I think it was Elon Musk says, you know, maybe this whole thing's a giant simulation created by a consciousness greater than us. I'm like, well, that's the bag of our Gita says that, except they don't use the word computer. Yeah. You know, like, so we're all reaching the same unifying idea of perhaps there is a, some kind of supreme consciousness that we are hooking up to. Yeah, yeah. I, I, really, I grew up 
uh, really religious. And so for that reason, I sometimes resisted as an adult, which is um, to say I was fundamentalist uh, Christian. Oh, wow. So I had- Where and what was it like? uh, In the the middle of nowhere, South Dakota. um, And it gave me a lot of ideas about life and sex and various things that Mm. I've had to spend a lot of my adulthood like untangling and being like, okay, that's not actually right. That's not like actually the way the world works. I really am interested in people's creative processes. So when Kumail Nanjiani and Emily Gordon, who not only co-wrote the Oscar-nominated script for The Big Sick, but also are married to each other, came on the show, I wanted to ask them about like if they had rules for how they set up their creative partnership. And believe it or not, they did. So they talked about that, and here's that clip. So you two are couple mm-hmm. and you wrote this together and I, I just to get this out front my wife and I are writing partners oh cool uh, so we write together and it's the most natural thing in the world to me but everybody asks me how do you do it how yeah. do you put up with each other so I'm gonna ask you that <laughs> like how do like did it just feel natural was it like an extension of your already existing relationship or, or, or it was it tricky was because we already we had worked together on we had a podcast together in fact and mm-hmm. we also had a stand-up show together that was then a tv show so we had worked together in a couple different capacities so writing was the new part for this time but uh we have a good kind of working relationship, I think, uh, with each other. So it did feel quite natural. Yeah. And it's good that we'd worked in other ways before because writing can be pretty. I think it's the most fraught uh, mm-hmm. of the. It's very vulnerable. Yeah. Because yeah. you can write something and send it to someone. And if they don't like it, that can feel very personal, you know. Um, so it was good that we'd sort of established a relationship and boundaries and stuff. Uh, producing the the meltdown show, and then before that, as you said, the um, the indoor kids podcast, the indoor kids podcast, right? So we sort of, I would say, with the podcast, there were some stuff we learned, and with meltdown, <laughs> some stuff we learned, and then with the movie, actually, in a way, out of all of those, it was the smoothest, yeah, because we sort of figured out everything. It was like learning how to respect each other as as coworkers, which is a different thing than right. as as uh, spouses. Often, like we would go into meetings and I would expect my spouse to have my back every single thing that I say, but my coworker gets to disagree with what I have to say or like gets to add on like, and that, that was a different a thing for us to navigate. So we'd gotten all that under control by the time we were writing together. And okay. then we're both just kind of fans of each other's writing style. And so it's kind of lovely to get to, you know. Yeah. Take on each other's work and look right, at it. Mm-hmm. and we have so we have very similar points of reference, you know. So right. we could because we obviously in the last ten years have seen kind of the same movies together. <laughs> so you could kind of be like, oh, it's like that scene in that movie, or hey, we should have a scene like this where oh my god, you got a little biscotti. That's oh, right. Sorry, <laughs> the coffee you. has arrived. Um, thank you. Um, so so that was good, and we were able to sort of you know that shorthand that comes from sort of having watched the same stuff and right uh, w- w- was was very uh, thank you I got I'm that. trying okay but we also had the same nerd shorthand from that's why we got together was that we had watched the same stuff growing up and had played the same video games growing up so we already had like a shorthand that then just kept getting kept growing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We we when we moved in together, we had to get rid of a lot of the same movies and video games because we had the same ones. And then and not CDs though. Not CDs. that's how old of a couple we are. <laughs> <laughs> different CDs were different. We had different tastes in music. Um, 
if, if you want to offer me podcasting tips while we do this, please go ahead because <laughs> don't let your oh. don't let anyone drink espresso. Like <laughs> I'll tell you what I do hate um, is when people are eating during podcasts. Yes, that's so right. Like, uh, come on, don't do that. If you listen to the commentary of our movie, mm-hmm. Barry's eating. Our producer, who is not in the same room with us, is eating, and Kumail keeps calling him out for it over and over again. <laughs> uh, I was actually listening to our commentary the other day. Oh, you did? It's embarrassing. I shouldn't talk about that, but yes, I was. how was our commentary? <laughs> Okay. Yeah. I love commentaries. Like I listen to a lot of them. Uh, so to me, it was like very important to have a, a good one. Yeah. Because I love them. And finally, this episode was just from a couple of weeks ago. So you've probably heard it. But when I talked to comedian Chris Gethard about the idea of losing the idea of failing and learning something from that, that it really stuck with me. I actually thought about putting it last in the run because of that, but also this isn't a failure. This wasn't a loss. We had a good show. And I think that, that Chris gets it. Why I think that. The title lose well, um, just, just, I mean, I've read it. I I love the philosophy behind it, but just kind of tell the listeners who maybe haven't read the book, what that means to you. First of all, thank you for saying that. Uh, lose well is this idea kind of came about via my, my TV show when we were on public access, where I kind of went on this rant during one episode where I told another cast member who had said she was feeling a little bit like a loser. I said, well, that's the whole point. We're on public access TV. Like, we're the losers. We struck (laughs) out, but we're really good at it. We lose well. Mm -hmm. And that's the goal. The goal is not to be perfect. The goal is to get out there and fall on your face and learn how to do that graciously and then get back up and see what else you can do. So this book is uh, really an effort to sort of uh, put every thought I have that falls under that umbrella into one place. I think a lot of comedians... Um, people often approach and say, how do I get into it? How do I do it? And I think because I've walked a very non-traditional path, I get a lot of messages from people, Mm -hmm. you know, online or people who come up to me after shows and um, people always are like, well, you, you, you are the DIY guy. What was your thoughts behind it? And in particular, I had a, uh, there was a a girl I went to high school with who, who reached out to me and was like, I always wanted to go for it. And you went for it. How'd you pull it off? And she was someone I was very fond of who had, you know, just had to live a little bit more real life when we were young than I did. And I just started getting really motivated of like, I just want to take every everything that explains the chip on my shoulder and every thought I've had about this stuff and every like little piece of trial and error philosophy I've learned over the past 18 years, put it all in one place maybe make it a little bit of a rallying cry for some of the other underestimated people of this world. (laughs) Oh, you know, when I was just sort of starting out my career, my writing career, I really spent a long time thinking like somebody was just going to come up and like tap me on the shoulder and like lift me up (laughs) to whatever the next level was. And I don't know where I got that idea. I think growing up a a white man in America is probably a big part of that. We expect that at some point. (laughs) But I I also like – what I came to realize was like I had to make it – I had to make it work for myself. Like when the opportunities yeah. came, I had to be – the way I was describing it to young writers was I always called it pack your parachutes. So that when the the door in the plane opens and you have to jump out, you know, you're ready to go. And I'm wondering like what you think about like that idea of, you know, seizing opportunity but also like 
toiling away in anonymity to be ready for when the opportunity's there. 100%. It's, it's really, I feel like I'm in a, a pretty unique position to speak to the power of that because I would think, and I don't think I'm being too self-deprecating, I don't think I'm underestimating myself, but I would think that if I, let's say I wound up with a, a lead role on a hit sitcom tomorrow, mm-hmm. and critics love my performance, I would think that to the large majority of America, I would be viewed as some overnight success who came right. out of nowhere. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, I had 47 episodes of a show on cable. I have a podcast that's doing very well. I've done character acting roles on a whole bunch of shows people love. And yet I would still be largely an unknown quantity. Right. And no matter how much I've accomplished, I've had an HBO special, like no matter how much of that happens to me, I still feel like I'm only on the fringe of the mainstream. Mm -hmm. So I think it just goes to show that as things grow and as things progress, it is all about, well, now you have this next thing and it becomes another sort of notch on your belt or it teaches you a little bit more about how things work. But I've had all that stuff and I still feel like, man, I'm just primed and ready for the real big thing. And you do that enough years. And and one of the things I talk about in the book is start to realize, oh, there's no end. There's no end to this. And you're always going to feel that way. And there's always going to be that sense of like discontent or that you're not exactly where you want it to go. You will be well served to just sort of get used to that and enjoy that because Mm -hmm. it doesn't go away. And there are so many other great episodes in the archives if you go back and look. In particular, the interview with Errol Morris from the first year was terrific. We had a really wonderful episode with the actress Michaela Watkins. Uh, The first year of the show in general, you know, it took a while to build up some traction. So if you haven't heard some of those episodes, go back and listen because there's some really great stuff in there. But now you have a lot of time to do that. And uh, that's the show. Thank you so much for listening to I Think You're Interesting, which was hosted and executive produced by me, Todd Vanderwerf. We tried so hard to find a fancy way to introduce the credits, and we never found it. I apologize. We really did try. We're going to be back in the new year, probably in the spring. We're going to be doing a new show that tells some great stories from the history of television. If you are subscribed to this feed... You're going to get that show. If you're not, I don't know how you're listening to this, but you should subscribe because you'll be there when that show arrives. But until then, my producer was Bridget Armstrong. My editor was Griffin Tanner. The executive producer of audio at Vox Media is Nishak Kurwa. The sound designer is Miles Newell. The logo design, thanks to Victor Ware, Crystal Stevens, and Georgia Cowley. Our production manager is Alex Ulreich. Our production coordinator is Carrie Clements. Our audio engineering this week is thanks to Rebel Talk Network. We recorded at the Beverly Hills Four Seasons Hotel. Our recording engineer was Ernie Hurtado. And uh, let's also do a quick shout out to P3 Post and Che Brooks, who worked on so much of this show in the time that it was on the air. And we thank them as well. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to the show. It's not going to help us get great guests anymore because the show's doing a different thing now. But it will help people get the news about it when we get around to our new thing. You can email me, Todd at Vox.com. The email address for ityi.podcast at Vox.com will continue to work if you have stories you'd still like to hear and you can always tweet at me at tvoti if one of you would just say you're sad about the show becoming another thing that would make me feel good so do that yeah we're not going to be back next week both because it's the holidays and because the show is doing a different thing but until you hear from us again 
Thanks for listening. We really loved having you go on this ride with us. Thank you.